Okay, so let's get started. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to uh, come and learn together uh, today. This is obviously a very uh, difficult time, uh, both in Israel and really for Jews across the globe. Um, you, you may hear at some points uh, over the um, over the shear that you may hear planes in the background. Um, I live in Modin, which is really in the center of Israel. Thankfully, we haven't had uh, only had one siren so far, but um, you do hear fighter jets so going consistently um, over overhead. In addition, they rerouted the planes uh, for Ben Gurion Airport. So for some reason, the, the rerouting means that um, the route is going directly over Modine. So if you hear planes going overhead during uh, during the shear, uh, unfortunately, it's beyond my control, but uh, that's really uh, what's going on here. Um, obviously, you know, for everybody, we're still sort of in shock as to what happened on, on Simcha's Torah. Um, I'm sure many of us um, I know that we have many students or right, alumni who are currently serving on the front lines. And uh, many of us in the yeshiva and the broader yeshiva community uh, know people who unfortunately um, were, were killed in the, in the massacre. Um, specifically this year, I'd like to dedicate um, A, to the, the memory of anybody who was uh, killed in the, in, in the Simcha's Torah massacre. And for Rafua Shlema, for anybody who's recovering from injuries, in particular, I want to mention one uh, person in specifically. His name is Hirsch Polin. Hirsch Polin is uh, the son of friends of mine from Jerusalem, who unfortunately is being held captive right now. So I want to dedicate uh, the shear to the safe return of Hirsch Polin, as well as all the other captives. Obviously, the whole experience is extremely traumatic for the family and for for everybody, so just hopefully that uh, the learning of the Torah that we're doing to get today will at least make one tiny, small contribution, right? the hope that that will speedily bring back Hirsch as well, everybody else who's currently being held captive in Gaza. Um, when they asked me to give this year, they told me the topic was uh, biblical personalities. So initially I was thinking about talking about Avraham, then I decided to make a last minute switch and talk about uh, Yaakov. And I decided for two reasons. Uh, first of all, I've always had a personal connection to Yaakov. Uh, my middle name is Yaakov. My first name is uh, David, David. My second name is Yaakov, I'm named for uh, my father's uh, grandfather. So I've always had a personal connection, just the biblical character Yaakov, by virtue of my name. But beyond my personal connection, I thought it would be an appropriate personality to analyze. Because right now, the Jewish people across the world we're experiencing something very difficult, very traumatic. And Yaakov is sort of the paradigm in terms of thinking about the Avot, who symbolizes the Jewish people, right? We're not called B'nai Avraham, sons of Avraham. We're not called B'nai Yitzchak, the children of Yitzchak. We're called B'nai Yisrael, right? The children of Yisrael. Now, obviously, in the biblical context, the name Yisrael, right, is the alternative name for Yaakov. Certainly, when the Jewish people are experiencing an Eitzarah, a moment of extraordinary tragedy, I think it's somehow cathartic to sort of engage the personality very much symbols, very much symbolizes our collective struggle, and that is our forefather, Yaakov Avinu. So before we get to the content of this year, I want to provide a little bit of context for thinking about Yaakov by understanding the evolution of um, the biblical genealogy from Avraham to Yitzchak to Yaakov. Right? Avraham 
is the first Jew. Okay, but in addition to being the first Jew, right, Akko, yeah, Abraham is somebody who is a theological revolutionary. Right, he's somebody who discovers God on his own. Think about Abraham as sort of the first Balchuva, right? Obviously, the Balchuva in a Talmudic sense doesn't just mean somebody who you know becomes newly observant. It means somebody who does chuva. But Abraham is sort of like the first Balchuva in the contemporary sense. He's somebody who literally finds God on his own. He's not raised in an environment which is conducive to you know worshiping the Yudkevavke Hashem, and nonetheless he finds God. Okay, so he represents sort of the transition, the idea that all of a sudden a new theological revolution that to take place. Yitzchak is sort of what we would call the first from, from birth person in Jewish history, right? He's not sort of a theological revolutionary, right? He doesn't have the drama associated with him of Avraham. In fact, he's the opposite of Avraham, right? Avraham is born in an environment which is not conducive to ethical monotheism. But Yitzchak is the opposite. Yitzchak is born into the house of Avraham, right? So he's really the first sort of from from birth person we have in our tradition. And he's somebody who represents continuity. If Avram represents the idea of a revolution, right, of a theological revolution, well, then Yitzchak is somebody who represents continuity, right? His job is not necessarily to be a revolutionary the same way that Avraham was. His job is just to be a link in the chain, right? The person who passes on the tradition that he received from his father. Then all of a sudden you get to Yaakov. So if Avram is the revolutionary, and Yaakov and Yitzchak is the first from, from birth Jew. He's the link in the chain. So Av, Yaakov has a different responsibility, right? It's no longer about theological revolutions. That was already accomplished by his grandfather. It's no longer just about continuity. That was accomplished by his father. But Yaakov is about transitioning from an era of what I would call a Judaism based on tribes, right? Small communities, small families, moving away from a tribal Judaism to a sense of Jewish peoplehood, right? So Yaakov becomes the person who is the father of the 12 tribes, right? Yaakov is the father of the Jewish people, right? So that's sort of some context of thinking about Yaakov, that Abraham is the revolutionary, Yitzhak is the chain, is the link in the chain, and Yaakov is the one who transitions the Jewish world from a tribal type of Judaism, father to son, to something much bigger, right? A sense that there isn't just one son who's picked and one son who's sent away, like what happens with Yitzchak, uh, with, uh, with Yitzchak. But rather, it's every Jew, right? Every person is part of a larger family. Everybody has a role to play in the larger story of the Jewish people. So what I want to do really in this year is sort of analyze and think through the different stages of Yaakov's life. I thought about this and I realized you could sort of break down Yaakov's life into 14 stages. And what you'll see over the course of this year is that there's a perpetual dissonance in understanding Yaakov as a person. I think the, the dissonance that I'm going to articulate is exactly the source of the Jewish people's strength. Remember, Yaakov is the model, right? The archetype of the Jewish people. What I want to claim basically is that by analyzing Yaakov and his struggle, we can learn something about the eternality, the eternal struggle, right? That the Jewish people have experienced throughout history. And the Jewish people are experiencing right now in this moment. And what I want to claim basically is that there are two dimensions to the struggle. Okay. The first dimension is the sense that oftentimes things don't go the way we expected. You'll see as we go through the stories of Yaakov, you'll see that for Yaakov, things don't always go the way he wanted them to go. Right. There are surprises. 
There are changes. There are mysteries that he can't make sense of. But the novelty of Yaakov is that even though he experiences a lot of struggle, a lot of challenging moments, he's always tapped into the idea that there's a bigger story transpiring. And it's his responsibility to sort of overcome the initial challenge in service of the much bigger story. Okay, so let's see some examples of this. So remember, I, I, I articulated, I isolated here 14 stages of Yaakov's life. Okay, so let's give a, an overview. The first, if you look on the source sheet over here, is how Yaakov is born, right? Yaakov's birth is already quite mysterious. So the Torah, when it describes Yaakov, it describes how his mother, Rivka, feels, right, that she has a lot of things going on in her womb. She feels like, you know, something, a lot of things are moving. Obviously, this is before the era of sonograms. It wasn't like, you know, Rivka could go to the local uh, doctor and figure out that she had twins. But she feels like there's a lot going on. So she complains to God and she complains to, sorry, she complains to Yitzchak and says sort of, what, what's going on here? In other words, why is there so much movement? So God says to Yitzchak that shnei goyim bevitnech, right? There are actually two nations that are currently in your womb, right? And then what happens afterwards is that the way the way Yaakov is born is equally as significant. He's not only described as the father of a nation, but what happens when he's born? It says in Pesuch Chavav, v'achar ichen Right, that what Yaakov is doing is he's holding on right to the foot of Asaf. Okay, now presumably that's not really a relevant variable from the perspective of the story. Why do we have to know that? Right, why is it important for us to know that our forefather Asaf is born, Yaakov is born a certain way where he's holding on to the foot right of his brother Asaf? So presumably there's something going on here. And the way it's explained by Chazal is that Esav, Yaakov, even in the womb, right, had a sense that he wanted to be the one, right, to be the firstborn, right, that he's having this struggle, right, of deciding who's going to be the first one, right, to come into the world, him or his brother. And, and even then, right, even in utero, he's a fighter. Even in utero, he's somebody who realizes there's a struggle, there's something going on here, and I have to do something. And I have to basically grab my brother's foot doing the small thing that I can do to try my best, right, to come out first and by extension receive the merit of the first sport. And even though he's unsuccessful, what happens in the second stage of Yaakov's life, not surprisingly, that he tries to buy, right, the birthright from his brother Asaph. It's a direct continuation of what he experienced in utero, right? In utero, he experiences a struggle. He feels something bigger is going on. And then when he's born and he develops and he evolves, he realizes that for some reason, he can't articulate why this is the case, at least according to the Torah, but he feels as though there's something going on and he has to be able to claim this birthright, right, from his brother Asaph. Therefore, the second thing the Torah tells us is that not only is he born in the context of struggle, but the first thing he does when he matures sufficiently to understand what's going on is that he basically rectifies what he perceives to be a wrong that existed from birth, namely that he didn't receive the birthright. And therefore, he does is he buys the birthright from his brother Asaph. At this stage in the story, it sounds like things are going quite well for Yaakov, right? Because remember, in terms of the experience of the womb, he wants the birthright, he loses out. He experiences struggle, he loses. But then all of a sudden, later on, He's able to reclaim that birthright by buying it back from his brother Asaph. 
Then all of a sudden, there's a very mysterious part of the story in Yaakov's life, which on the surface seems totally innocent. The Torah tells us right after Yaakov buys the birthright, the Torah tells us that all of a sudden, there is a famine in the land of Israel. And the Torah says the famine parallels the famine that happened during the time of Abraham. Okay? Now, instinctively, Yitzchak wants to leave Israel. Obviously, there's a famine. And he knew that his father, Avraham, when there was a famine, also left Eretz Israel. The Torah goes out of its way to say, Al The Torah tells us that Hashem says to Yitzchak, you're not allowed to leave Israel. And again, it's mysterious. Why is the Torah telling us that? Why is it a relevant variable right now? Why is it so critical for the Torah to tell us that all of a sudden, Yitzchak himself should not leave Israel? So hold that thought for one second. Look at the next stage of Yaakov's life. The next stage of Yaakov's life, remember Yaakov's life is going pretty well. He receives the birthright. Then all of a sudden, he finds out that his father is going to give the blessing to his brother, Esav, only to find out later on that his mother has a deceptive plan, right, to try to ensure that he's the one who receives the special blessing. So from Yaakov's perspective, not only did he receive the birthright through the sale to Esau that he thought he deserved. But all of a sudden, his mother is going to sort of create a scenario that's going to provide him also with the special blessing, right, which he also somehow believes is also his because he should have been the firstborn. But then all of a sudden, things start to go downhill for Esau, for Yaakov. And they go downhill in a very serious way because what happens next? This is stage five of Yaakov's life. Stage five, Esau threatens to kill Yaakov. Now, that in of itself wouldn't be so horrible. I mean, obviously, the threat of murder is horrific. But existentially, it wouldn't have shaken him up the same way because he could always run. There's always the possibility of running away. But then all of a sudden, Rivka tells something to Yaakov, which really captures exactly what Yaakov is all about. What does Rivka say? She says, run away to my brother, Lavan. Leave Eretz Yisrael. Why is that significant? Because you remember earlier in the story that his father Yitzchak was told explicitly by God when there was a famine, do not leave Israel. Yaakov is aware of this. Yaakov at this stage in the story is already an adult. Okay? He knows that his father wants to leave and he knows he's being told to stay put. So think about it from Yaakov's perspective. From Yaakov's perspective, what does he know? He knows that his father who is the chosen son, prefers his brother. He also knows that the only reason why he receives the special blessings is because of a plan by his mother. And now he knows that as opposed to his father, he's being told to do the exact opposite. He's being told to run away, to leave Eretz Israel. Now think about it psychologically from Yaakov's perspective. Yaakov knows that A, his father favors his brother. He knows that his mother loves him, but his mother is telling him the exact opposite of what God told his father to do. So from Yaakov's perspective, he's experiencing existential angst. He probably thinks that I'm literally being thrown away from the tradition, right? He probably thinks to himself, wait a second, in the, line- in the battle of lineage that happened in Abraham's time, in Yitzchak's time, there's always one good son and one bad son. So what does he know? He knows that his father prefers the other brother. 
He knows his mother is telling him to go away. He also knows his mother is telling him to go away outside the land of Israel. So he probably thinks to himself, you know what? My brother Esau is being chosen over me, right? I am being sent away. I'm like Ishmael. I'm the one sent away, and I am not the one chosen the same way my father Yitzhak was. So all of a sudden, what happens? Yaakov experiences extraordinarily extraordinary angst. And then, all of a sudden, in this moment, there's this climactic element to Yaakov's life, which is what happens. He goes to run away. He follows exactly what his mother, Rivka, tells him to do. And then all of a sudden, it says in the Torah, look here in Parakid Chavchet, it says, he goes to bed, right? He goes to lay down, and he has a dream. So he sees the famous story of Jacob's ladder. And he sees angels going up and down. And then all of a sudden, he's told in the dream not to worry. He's told that Jacob, that Hashem will be with him. And then instinctively what happens is he wakes up from the dream and he has the most interesting reaction. What he says here, he says, He wakes up from his dream. He says, wow, there's God in this place, and I didn't know. And the great Bible scholar, Nachum Sarno, points out that if you contrast Yaakov's reaction to Yitzchak and Avraham, it's actually quite amazing. Because when a person has an encounter with God, it's called a theophany. When a, biblical figures like Avraham and Yitzchak, when they have the experience of the, the theophany, it almost happens naturally. When God comes to Avram and says, there's no wonder, there's no mystery, there's no majesty. Avram just does what he's told to do. Here, when Yaakov has his theophanic experience, his encounter with the divine, he has the exact opposite reaction to everybody else. He jumps up and he says, wow, right? God is actually in this place. Now, why does that make perfect sense? Because as opposed to Yaakov, as opposed to Yitzchak, and as opposed to Avraham, who felt confident that they were the ones chosen by God to continue the tradition, Yaakov thinks that he's being cast away. And therefore, he can't possibly think that in that space, God is going to come to him. So therefore, the first thing that he does is he wakes up and he says, wow, God is here, and I wasn't aware of it, namely, that I thought that I was being sent away, that I wasn't going to be part of the divine drama. But I'm realizing now that in my struggles, there's a bigger story being told. And the details of the story aren't always so clear to me. So it may seem like I'm being thrown away. But actually, God comes to me in the dream and tells me that even though I may feel like I'm being rejected, right, I am very much part of this dramatic story that began by Ab with Avraham. In fact, Yaakov goes further, and he makes a vow, and he says, He says to God, if you're going to be with me, right, if you do these things for me, then I'll respond in kind to you. And all the Farshim want to say, wait a second, how could Yaakov possibly test God? How could he say to God, if you do this, I'll do that? So some of Farshim explain that Yaakov didn't believe that his revelatory experience in the dream was real. He thought it was an illusion, right? Because again, Yaakov has such low self-esteem vis-a-vis his role in the drama of the Jewish people because of all he's experienced. 
that he literally wakes up and says, I can't believe God is here. He then second guesses that theophany and says, wait a second, that may have been an illusion. And therefore he says to God, if what you promised me in the dream comes true, I'll know it wasn't simply a figment of my imagination. And by extension, I'll know, right, that what I experienced really was a divine moment. And I'll realize that I actually am not being sent away. On the contrary, I am becoming the leader, the next the successor to the lineage of Avraham and Yitzhak, which is why, by the way, in the Mishnah, in the Midrashic reading of the dream, right, the images of the angels going up and down is God showing Yaakov different kings, futuristic kings who are going to rule the Jewish people and go away, right? It's an amazing Midrash. Midrash is saying is, Yaakov feels like he's detached. And God is telling him, you, Yaakov, feel like you're detached. But don't worry, I'm still with you. So too, the Jewish people in the future will experience tragedy, will experience horror. Sometimes we'll feel detached. But just like I am with you right now, I will be with the Jewish people, right, even in their most tragic moments. So you see from here the buildup in terms of the literary, the literary pull of the story. That Yaakov is somebody whose life makes no sense. He's experiencing perpetual tension. And he basically concedes. He gives into the tension. Only to be told by God, no, the struggle here is what makes you, Yaakov, unique. Is that you're not going to help be held captive to the struggle. You may have struggles, but you're going to be sort of the microcosm of the Jewish people. That even when we have struggles, we're going to be able to overcome it by being mindful, right, of the larger divine promise. Now, Yaakov's story at this point seems like it's heading in a positive direction. He all of a sudden has the promise from God, right? And even though, again, as our first points out, he's not experiencing the same thing as his ancestors because, for example, Avraham, when he left his homeland, he had everything. He had his family. He had divine promise. He promised here Yaakov has nothing, right? But despite having nothing, he feels confident. He feels energized by the divine promise. What's the next part of Yaakov's life? It's really amazing. What happens to Yaakov next? He goes to Lavan. Presumably, Lavan is supposed to be a safe space for him. He's the cousin of Yaakov's mother, right? He meets his future bride, and he makes a deal that he wants to be able to work seven years, right, for Rachel, but all of a sudden, in classic Yaakov formulate, in the classic Yaakov experience, things don't go the way he had planned. What happens in the case of Yaakov and Rachel? That he's deceived by Lavan, right? He's deceived by Lavan. But he says, you know what? It's okay. I'll work seven more years, and I'll be able to marry afterwards Rachel as well. And then what happens after that is even more remarkable. Yaakov living in the house of Lavan is safe from his brother Esau. But eventually, and again, there's more story here, but eventually he leaves the house of Laban and he goes back. And immediately when he goes back, he has to re-engage, right, the story that he was able to forget about for a long time, namely, right, the desire for Esau to kill his brother Yaakov. So what does Yaakov do? He prepares for battle. He does three things. He prays. He sends gifts to his brother, right? And he prepares for battle. So again, in terms of the arc of Yaakov's life, things were looking better. He felt like he was going to have right a more sort of confident place in the tradition. Then all of a sudden, he's tricked. He's deceived by Lavan. He returns back to Eretz Israel only to be reminded that his brother 
Esav wants to kill him. And then what happens is an amazing moment in Yaakov's life, similar to the divine encounter he had earlier. Remember, Yaakov has a divine encounter, right? Earlier, as, as I pointed out, he's the only one of the Avot who actually has expressed a shock when he encounters the divine. Why? It makes sense, because he doesn't believe it's real. Then all of a sudden, he's terrified for his life again. Why? Because even though he's promised things by God, he has his brother with 400 men out to get him. So what happens when he goes to dream? All of a sudden, he has a dream, and an angel comes and fights with him the entire night. And then all of a sudden, when they're wrestling, he says to the angel, give me a bracha. The angel says, your new name is not going to be Yaakov. Your new name is going to be Yisrael. The, the logic here is critical. Look what it says here in the bold, the puzzle of It says, he says, your name is going to be Israel. Why? What, what does it mean to be part of B'nai Israel? He says, Because you struggled with God, you struggled with other people, and you were able to emerge victorious. Now, what's interesting about this formulation is some Hasidic commentators point out that Yaakov could have been called, instead of Yisrael, he could have been called Tuchal El. What are the verbs here? Right? Yisrael means to struggle, and Tuchal means to overcome or to succeed. So we could have been the nation, we could have been called the nation who overcomes. Tuchal El. But we're not. Yaakov's name is Yisrael, right? the nation who struggles. Right? Why? Because the idea is, is that it's not only about our ability to overcome. It's about our ability to struggle sometimes. And in that struggle to realize we overcome because we see something bigger is going on. So it makes perfect sense that Yaakov receives this name because Yaakov's whole life is about this dissonance between on the one hand feeling like he doesn't belong, right? He's not part of the plan that was provided by God through Yitzchak, et cetera. At the same time, acknowledging that if he can see the world from a different perspective, he can see that actually he is part of the divine story, despite all the complexity associated with it. Now look what happens next in Yaakov's life. It's really unbelievable. Yaakov all of a sudden confronts Esav. Now you would expect, if it wasn't Yaakov, right, for things to go as planned. What would you expect to happen? There would be war. Why? Because 400 men are coming to attack Yaakov. And all of a sudden what happens? Yaakov encounters Esav by Yaratz Esav Likrato by Yichabkehu. What does Esav do? He hugs him. Right? He kisses his brother and they cry. Now the Mepharshim cannot make sense of this. How can it be that Yaakov, that Esav, right, the wicked Esav, decides to turn things around, right, and all of a sudden embrace and kiss his brother Yaakov? In fact, the, the Mepharshim really struggle with this. Someone will say, for example, that it was temporary. It wasn't like a full embrace. It was a partial embrace. But the idea is the same, right? Is that Yaakov's life doesn't really make sense. Because in what reality, he escapes his brother, right? Because he hears his brother wants to kill him. He then comes back to Eretz Israel and he sees his brother with 400 people. And what happens in the world of Yaakov? All of a sudden, he thought it was going to be the end. But then God, right, changes the story and says, you know what's going to happen? You may think the direction is moving in this direction, but actually things are going to change. The same Asaph who wanted to kill you and was trying to hunt you down with 400 men is actually going to embrace you. 
And what's really interesting about this, if you look at the way the commentaries reference this point, they say that what made Yaakov unique, when it says that he was able to struggle with man and God, they reference the struggle with Asaph, right? That Yaakov's life was not only a struggle with the divine, it was struggle with people. And he was always able to overcome, right? So what you see here is a continuum, right? Every part of Yaakov's life is this dance between, on the one hand, feeling like he is existentially conflicted with an awareness that, wait a second, there's something bigger going on here. What happens next in Yaakov's life? After Yaakov finally is able to overcome, right, his, the fear of his brother, Asav, you would think that things are able, things are looking to get better. But again, that's not how Yaakov's life operates. Immediately after he parts ways with Asav, the first thing that happens is Yaakov's daughter, Dina, is abducted. Okay? Then you have the famous story of Shimon Balevi, where they eradicate, right, entire the enemy, and then Yaakov is upset. But what happens after that? After Yaakov realizes that his daughter is abducted, right, and then all of a sudden they have the fight between Shimon and Levi and his abductors, the next part of the story of Yaakov is also tragic. What happens? Yaakov has children. He favors his son, Yosef. And all of a sudden there's a sense that things are moving more positively towards Yaakov, right, that he has his favorite son, he has many children, then all of a sudden, what happens? Yaakov finds out, at least in his mind, that Yosef is killed. Now, the reader knows that Yosef is not killed. But still, from Yaakov's perspective, think about what he's been through, right? Think about all the stages of his life. First, he's born in the context of struggle, right? Then all of a sudden, he finally reclaims the birthright. Then his father is mysteriously told, stay in the land of Israel. Then his brother... Uh, and he finds out that his father wants to give Asaph the blessings. Then his mother says, no, 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 we're going to come up with a plan. But the plan involves him running away, the exact opposite of what happened to his father. Then all of a sudden, God comes to him and says, it's all going to be okay. Yaakov is so confused that he makes a net there. He can't believe it. Then things are looking a little better. The next thing that happens is Yaakov comes around. He's deceived by Lavan. Then all of a sudden, he prepares the battle with Asaph. Then Asaph, then he wrestles with an angel. He's given a new name. Then all of a sudden, he confronts Asaph, only to be found, only to find out that Asaph wants to give him a hug. Then he finally has, then his daughter's abducted. Then all of a sudden, what happens? He thinks Yosef was killed, right? And he lives his life thinking, wait a second, my son Yosef, right, is no longer alive. But then what happens at the end is actually really quite remarkable. What happens at the end of the story is that Yosef, Yaakov finds out that his son Yosef actually is alive. Okay? Now you would assume that he would be ecstatic about seeing his brother, seeing his son. You would assume that after all these years, all he wants to do is re-engage, reconnect with Yosef. So even though Yaakov, right, realizes that he's being told that he's going to see his son, he's anxious. Why is he anxious? Because again, he realizes that he may be being sent away. And if you look what the commentators say here, commentators make an amazing observation. They're trying to figure out what is the source of Yaakov's fear. Look at what Hirsch says here in English. This is amazing. He says, Jacob was the most joyful mood. Of course he's joyful. He just heard that his son is alive. That something must have occurred which sent him to an anxious, worrying mood, that he needed a reassurance. And the verse 2 tells us exactly what this was. The way the vision is described, a vision of the night, already expresses a serious impression on the whole. 
He's called Jacob, Jacob, and not Israel, completely disappointing Jacob and makes him think of the subsequent gravity of the meaning of the descent to Egypt, right? In other words, what Yaakov realizes is, is that the story is beginning, but not the way he wanted it to go. Why? Because he realizes that what's going to happen now when he leaves Mitzrayim is that the galut, the exile is about to happen. In other words, he is part of the story, right? He is the one who continues the tradition, but it's through Yaakov. That what happens is that Yaakov is actually the one, right, who brings Jewish people into exile. And therefore, what happens at the end of Yaakov's life? At the end of Yaakov's life, he brings all of his children together. And what does he say? He says, I want to tell you what's going to happen at the end of days. And there's an amazing Midrash. The Midrash says the following. The Midrash says that Yaakov was nervous about describing the end of days to his children. Why was he so nervous? Because he was afraid that just like his father and his grandfather, one of his children would abandon the tradition. And he didn't want to reveal the secrets of the end of days to people who are not appropriate. What happens then in the Midrashic reading? They say to Yaakov, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. They say to Yaakov, Israel, don't worry. We're all part of the story. To which he replies, Baruch Shem Kivod Machutol Olam Vaed. And by the way, that is why in the Shema every day we say Baruch Shem Kivod Machutoli Olam because it's the ultimate declarative, right? That what's Yaakov's ultimate fear? Yaakov's ultimate fear is that he's not part of the story. He lives with this anxiety that wait a second, maybe his children will be part of the story, and therefore the perpetual reaction of Yaakov and subsequently of Am Yisrael is Baruch Shem Kivod Machutoli Olam That even though there may be difficulties even though there may be challenges, right? We're never going to lose sight of the bigger picture. We're all going to affirm that we're all part of the larger story, which began with the promise of Avraham. Therefore, what I want to show you in this year today is that I think Yaakov, right, and his experience of sort of existential angst, I think really captures the experience that many of us are feeling right now, right? The Jewish people experienced the worst massacre that we've seen since the Holocaust. And it was, you know, perceived to be unimaginable. How could it possibly have happened? It's one thing for it to have happened in pre-war Poland, but we didn't have a state. And how could this possibly happen when we have a state, right? And there's a, there's a natural tendency to feel like, wait a second, you know, maybe, you know, we're sort of detached from the story, right? But the message of, of Abraham, the message of Yaakov, I'm sorry, is the idea that even when things are complicated, right? Even when things don't go exactly, right, as we expected, we're able to achieve our perseverance and our strength and our struggle by always remembering how Yaakov did it, which is to be mindful of the fact that there is something bigger going on, and we're very much part of that bigger story rooted in the divine promise. And therefore, even if we have our own anxieties, right, we always affirm every single day, Baruch Shem Kivod Va'ed, the exact same way that Yaakov's sons reassured him when he had his own anxieties. Any questions? Questions, reflections? Okay, well, thank you so much for coming on this year. I really appreciate it. And uh, if you have any questions, always feel free to reach out. And hopefully we should only hear Bissarot to vote.